If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 29. We've been in, in the series on the book of Genesis, you know, forever. And uh, who, know, who knows when we'll be done? It's, it, it's, it's an over-under on whether or not the pandemic will be over or the series will be over first. I would bet on the series at this point, but you never really know. But uh, anyway, so we've been looking through the book of Genesis. A couple of weeks ago, we kind of shifted out of, for a while, we were talking about this guy named Abraham, who sort of is, is the beginning, like, recurring character through the book. And at a certain point, Abraham has a son. Actually, Abraham has many sons, and I am one of them, and so are you. So here's the thing. Now, now that I know who's watching, I can visually imagine specific faces not laughing at my jokes. You know, at first I was just imagining that there were just like faceless people not laughing at my jokes, but now I know exactly who's not laughing at my jokes. That's a change. Anyway, so Abraham has a son named Isaac, and then Isaac has, has two sons named Esau and Jacob. And what we saw for the last couple of weeks is that Esau and Jacob have, we'll say a tense relationship. Uh, Esau being the firstborn had been given sort of the rights of the firstborn, but Isaac, through a certain amount of trickery and um, deception with a little help from his mom, uh, stole all of those things from his brother Esau. And then like the hero he is, he fled out of town before Esau could kill him. So, you know, like you do when there's a family squabble. So then, so Isaac has to leave and Isaac is supposed to go, his, his mother has told him to go and stay with her brother Laban. And so Isaac flees and he goes and he eventually ends up with his brother or with his uncle Laban. And that's where we're going to start the story today. And I'm, I do want to give you a little bit of a warning. Um, the story we're going to be looking at, the stories we're going to be looking at today are a little bit PG-13. There's, um, it's, it's not like overtly violent or anything like that. It is, um, the, there is a little bit of sexual content. Here's the thing. When you tell your kids at night, you should read the Bible more. You know in your head that you have to skip some stuff. You know that there's going to be some stuff that you, you there, there are going to be questions you don't want to have to answer. And this might be one of the stories where you'd rather just like get into this later. So if you've got small kids in the room, just heads up. We, I mean, it's it's not going to be super graphic, but just wanted you to know before we get to it that uh, there there is we, we're going to <laughs> uh, glimpse a little bit at some adult content. So um, that sounded creepy, but I don't know how else to say it. Anyway, so we're looking at Genesis twenty nine, just beginning in verse fifteen. So in uh, verse fifteen, it says Laban said to him, speaking of Jacob. So Jacob has ended up with his uncle Laban. It says Laban said to him. Just because you are a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. So they're arranging like a business arrangement. So Jacob is going to stay with Laban. And Laban is saying, listen, just because we're family doesn't mean I can't pay you. So which sounds really, it sounds really nice. It sounds like a good offer. Like, hey, you, you shouldn't have to work for nothing. What would you like as your wages? And then in verse 16, in the creepiest transition possible, verse 16, it says, now Laban had two daughters. So they start talking about payment and the next detail that the narrator gives us is, and Laban had two daughters. It says the name of the older was, was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Okay, first of all, if you're Leah and you're hearing this account of your life, maybe this is not your favorite thing. Like, well, and first of all, it, we, we could have a whole discussion. There's a whole rabbit hole to go down 
about simply the question, like, what do you mean? What does the writer mean when he says that Leah had weak eyes? There are, there are some, I mean, there, there's any number of translations. No one, there's no consensus on this at all. But so, there, there are some theories that maybe this was supposed to like be like her, her great beauty, like her, her like most striking attribute. And it just is mistranslated a little bit as like a, because it says Leah had great, uh, weak eyes but Rachel was beautiful so it sounds like the weak eyes thing is not a compliment so it's possible that it is a contrast but it's also possible that it's supposed to be some other descriptive term and we don't know anyway like I said there's a whole if you're interested there are books out there that have been like large sections of books that have been dedicated to the question of what do we mean by weak eyes we don't know but what we do know is Rachel seems to be the one that catches Jacob's eye. So it says, Jacob, in verse 18, it says, Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you to uh, Laban. says, I'll work for you for seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. So they start having a, a conversation about payment. And instead of talking about money, they, they, Jacob points at a human person and says, how about that person over there? And so um, then in verse 19, it says, Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man, you know, because you're cousins. So it says, stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. Such a charmer. Give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to make love to her. He said to her father. So, okay. Where do we start? You might be noticing, among, among all the things going on here, you might be noticing that not a single word has been spoken by Rachel. No one has asked Rachel at all what she thinks about this arrangement. Every word of dialogue here is spoken between Jacob and Laban. Rachel has no voice. R Rachel has no agency in this story. So before we go thinking that this is some sort of grand love story, like this guy loved her so much that he worked for seven years. Yeah, he did. But we have no idea how Rachel felt about any of this. Rachel is not consulted. When the, when the seven years are up, Jacob doesn't go to Rachel and say, now we can be together. He goes to Laban, her dad, and says, give me your daughter because I've got plans for tonight or something along those lines. So let's pay attention to who does and doesn't have power in the story. Jacob has some amount of power. Laban has the most amount of power and Rachel has no power. Rachel is a bargaining tool in this story. So verse, uh, so let's, let's keep going. So in verse 22, it says, so Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah, not Rachel, and brought her to Jacob. <laughs> I think we tend to imagine that she's like in disguise or something like that, but it's weird. Like, that's not really mentioned. He just says like, when the time came, Laban brought in Leah and no one had any questions. And it says, and brought her to Jacob and Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. When morning came, the, the wording on this is insane. When morning came, there was Leah, exclamation mark. Like this is, like just some sort of like wacky misunderstanding. There was Leah. Jacob wakes up and it's not Rachel, it's Leah. So Jacob says, not to Leah. Jacob says to Laban, what is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? 
Laban replied, It is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. Okay. So that feels like something that should have probably been brought up sometime before now. It's been seven years. It seems like at some point somebody might have mentioned, by the way, the oldest one has to get married first. That seems like something you don't want to just spring on a guy after the wedding. I don't know. Whatever. So anyway, there's, there's nothing about the story that isn't messed up. So anyway, it says, so he says, finish this daughter's bridal week, and then we will, we will give you the younger one. Again, Rachel not consulted. Leah not consulted. We will give you the other one. <laughs> uh, then in verse 28, it says, and Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife. Okay. So once again, all of the decisions in the story are being made by two men. And it is directly and permanently impacting the lives of Leah and Rachel. Leah and Rachel have no power, but they are central to the story because they're, they're the ones whose lives are basically being used as bargaining chips for these two men to decide on a business transaction. So it's pretty gross when you think about it, even without, even without the incest, it's pretty gross. So then uh, let's jump down to verse 31. It says, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. So a couple of things here. One is I think a lot of times the, the detail of Rachel being childless is seen as a punishment. It's not really listed that way. It just basically it is kind of a matter of fact sort of thing of Rachel is currently without children. And so that's, so it, it, it's just a matter of fact. And then two, the, so that's the first observation. The second thing to, to maybe be pointed out here is that the, the phrase, it says, when the Lord saw that Leah was, was not loved, it doesn't mean that God all of a sudden like noticed something. In, in ancient Hebrew literature, anytime God sees something, what's being said here is, that God is leaning towards a person, that God is empathizing, that there is an open, there is an open-heartedness to the divine in these moments. So when it says the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, it means that that God has an emotional response to Leah's situation. So, okay, a couple of things. Where to begin? So in the ancient Near East, there were two generally acceptable roles for women. If you were a woman in the ancient Near East, you, you could be one of two things and be functionally a part of society, of, of civilized society. So uh, the first role is you could be a daughter living in your father's house, awaiting marriage, a, um, obviously a, a virgin daughter in your father's house waiting to be married. So you're either waiting for your father to trade you for for marriage or so that's that's the first acceptable role and then the second acceptable role is that you can be a wife who is bearing sons for her husband if you're a woman in this time those are the two basic things that you could be if you were neither of those things you're in a very vulnerable at risk situation because if you are neither of those things, then you have no sort of economic value and you have very little agency in your own life. So there, there is, the, the system is not set up for women to be 
on their own or to be single or to, or to be outside of their father's house and not the mother of sons. So that's the situation at the time. So Leah's situation is particularly dangerous here because she's unloved, according to the text, by her husband. She's been given off by her father, which means her father has no response. Like her father, by having her married to Jacob, Laban is basically saying she is not a financial issue for me anymore. I, I no longer have to care for her. So Laban has kind of like tossed Leah to Jacob. And so now Leah is in a situation where she is not in under the protection of her father's roof, but she's also the wife of someone and she's not producing sons. And she wasn't like she, the, the marriage had to happen as an act of de deceit in order to even put her in this situation. So she's in a very dangerous situation because, again, because she's unloved and she's without sons. And so according to the system of the time, she has no immediate value, which is a harsh thing to say, but that's, that is the way of the world at the time. So being able to bear sons would have been seen as a sign of rescue. It would have been seen as a sign of validation. It would have been seen as a sign of you are safe. You are protected. And so it wasn't just like, now she'll have something to do with herself. It was, this is, this is how we keep this person from being thrown in the garbage. This is, this is how you keep this person from being completely disregarded as a human being at the time. So the system that she's living in is terrible. But to, to be able to be given the ability to have sons gives her sort of a life raft in, in, a, in a certain sort of sense. So that's, that's why it's so significant when it says, and so God saw saw that Leah was unloved and so let, made her able to bear children. It was basically a way of saying like, this person needs some kind of rescue here or else she's going to be on her own. So this is, so if we just sort of stop in this place and have this kind of moment where we reckon with and, and kind of um, acknowledge the feeling of what it feels like to be unloved or unseen or, or to or to believe that you are unloved or unseen or disregarded or without value uh, or, or without power or agency in your own life it's a terrible lonely place to be if you've ever um if you've ever found yourself being the only one um saying what you believed was the right thing and and you knew that to to speak at a time when keeping silent is safer, then then you know that there is a there is a loneliness to that. There is a what will this cost me? How how isolated am I going to be in this moment? Or if you've ever like been in a situation where you were close with someone and you felt like that person betrayed you, and you felt like now like who can I trust if this person has shown me that I cannot trust them? Or if you've if you've ever lost someone who was close to you and you felt like like some some sort of hole had opened up inside of you and like you like what in the world what what in the world can come and replace that like where that person once resided like there there are these moments or even like in the last year like all the all the things all the normalcy all the routines that we've lost and like what happens a lot of times is we we lose things that we didn't even know were giving us a sense of normalcy and stability and, and it's, it's really easy to sort of feel like we're drifting a little bit and that we're more vulnerable than we used to be and that we're a little more alone than we used to be. That's a, 
that's a terrible feeling. And so like we have to imagine that that's where Leah is at this point in the story. And so for the text to tell us at this moment that she was seen by God is a way of saying like even even in that moment, even in this terrible, very lonely, very isolated, very vulnerable moment of hers, she is not forgotten. She's not alone. So that's the Leah element of it. So let's talk about Rachel for a second. Rachel is, by the way, there's there's a book. I meant to put a link to it on the website and I forgot to. But there, there's a book called um, Womanist Midrash by Wilda Gaffney. And she has an, she has an entire essay in there, one about Leah and one about Rachel. And it's completely worth reading. It's it's dense. Like she is not playing around, but it's it's worth exploring. She she brings a lot of w- wisdom and insight to Rachel. And so a lot of a lot of what I learned in the last couple of weeks about Rachel came from reading her research. So anyway, just wanted to put that out there before we get into it. So anyway, let's talk about Rachel for a second. So through Jacob's eyes, all we know about Rachel is she's pretty. And she's the one that he wanted to marry and not Leah. However, that's not the first thing we learn about Rachel if we're looking at the text. We, we, I intentionally skipped something that now we're going to go back to. So uh, go back in Genesis 29 to verse 4. So in Genesis 29, verse 4, this is the first time we get a glimpse of Leah, or Rachel, sorry. Um, in verse 4, it says, Jacob asked the shepherds, my, brother, where, my brothers, where are you from? It says, we are from Haran. So Jacob has arrived in this, in this place in where, where his, his uncle and his family is, gonna, is living. And then if you jump down to verse 9, we get our, this is where you first meet Rachel. It says, while he was still talking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherd. Now this is an interesting detail, and I think a lot of times we, we spend time not looking at this because when we hear Rachel was a shepherd, it's like, okay, fine. She's, work, she, she's working in her father's household and she's a shepherd. Yeah, but that's actually, if we take a minute, like that, that's, that's actually a little bit unusual for the time. There are tra- actually, there are translations of this that I, we're using a translation that correctly identifies her as a shepherd. There are other translations in English that demote Rachel, her, her job um, title. There are translations that reduce Rachel's role to, it, instead of saying, for she was a shepherd, it, all it says is she was keeping the sheep, which is a different thing, without acknowledging that she's a shepherd. Here, here's why this is important. Again, in the world where this, where this is happening, there are two acceptable roles for women. You could be a daughter living in your father's household, awaiting marriage, or you can be a wife bearing sons. Rachel's not either of these things. So in Christian tradition, by the way, if we can go back to like, why would, why would certain translations change the, the, the wording here? Here's why. In Christian traditions, I got a little ahead of myself a second ago, but in Christian traditions in which women are reduced, specifically women are reduced to non-leadership roles in situations where, where women are told like, oh yeah, you can go and you can serve the, with the children and you can play piano and you can, um, you know, bake for whatever event we're doing. Nothing wrong with any of those things, by the way, if that's something that you like to do. But when women in churches are told, these are only these are the things that only you can do or that you're only allowed to do. And when it comes to things like leadership and preaching and, um, and having any amount of um, power in, in religious systems, women are told like, no, no, this is what men do. And one of the justifications for that is because the word pastor is literally a word that means shepherd. 
And so one of, the, one of the justifications for this, it's a weak argument, but it's an argument that people make. One of the justifications for this like marginalization of women in the church is, well, the word pastor, it, women, a woman can't be a pastor because the word pastor means shepherd and there aren't any shepherds in the Bible except for, here's Rachel right here. And so of course, some translations have to change this translation from Rachel was a shepherd to Rachel was keeping the sheep. Because if you can acknowledge that Rachel was a shepherd, then that like that leg of your argument falls apart. So that's why that's there. So it's already just in our own tradition, it's significant to just fully acknowledge that when the text says that Rachel was a shepherd, what it means is Rachel was a shepherd. And to us, that doesn't mean very much, but at the time it means quite a bit. So also, by the way, um, at the beginning of, of the whole story, Rachel is not just like waiting in her father's house for something. Rachel has agency. She's doing her own work. She's making her own way in the family business. She's not sitting at home waiting for her father to marry her off to a man, which would have been expected in, um, in most cultures at this time. And as far as we know, Rachel is the only woman, as far as the text shows us at least, Rachel is the only woman out here doing work that would have been traditionally assumed to be men's work, men's work, quote unquote. So this is important. And again, to reiterate, at the time, a woman was socially expected to do one of two things, be a daughter in her father's household or a wife producing sons. When we first meet Rachel, the very first thing that we learn about Rachel is that she's doing neither of those. She is defying all the categories. When we first meet Rachel, she's a feminist icon. But eventually, what happens over the course of the story, when Jacob sh shows up, the son that Laban never had, when Jacob shows up and says, for payment for my labor, I would like to marry Rachel, Rachel is never consulted. Laban simply says, sure. So eventually she's reduced. So, and when that happens, what we're told when it says Laban had two daughters, Leah had weak eyes and Rachel, what, what does it tell us? It doesn't tell us, and Rachel was a shepherd all by herself. Rachel already had her own career going. What does it tell us? She had a pretty face and a nice figure. That is crazy insulting to this person. So she is reduced to a physical description when the first thing that we learn about her is she's making her own way. She's figuring it out all by herself. She's the youngest daughter in the house, and she figures, I, I, better, I better figure my own way. I better... I better get, I better figure out how to do the family business. But eventually she's reduced to unable to have children in, in the passage we looked at a second ago. And then look at what happens in Genesis 30 verse one. In Genesis 30 verse one, it says, when Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. So what has happened to this person? When we first meet her, she's a shepherd. And at this point in the story, she is, give me children or I'll die. Like her identity, all of her, all of her self-worth has gotten wrapped up in like this weird toxic competition that she has with her sister. And, um, and, and so there, there's this really kind of dark toxicity going on here. And it's like, who can have the most kids and who can make Jacob love us more? And oh, by the way, if, if you remember all the way back to Genesis chapter three, when we first started the series, like a year, 
a thousand years ago or whatever. Um, all the way back in Genesis chapter three, this is exactly what was predicted because there is this scene where people are given these curses and the woman is told in, in this curse, the woman is told your desire will be for her, for your husband and he will rule over you, which again is not something that we should be aspiring to. This is a look how broken the system has gotten as a result of these choices. So this is the result of a curse. Like what we're seeing is sort of Genesis three being played out in real time of, oh, Jacob has all this power. And he's taken this person who had a certain amount of agency and free will and self-esteem. And she is now in the story, like, give me children or I'll die because my sister has more kids than me. And so a, a person, a person should never have to chase after their self-worth like this. This is this this story is a reminder that this is never how it was meant to be. This is a reminder of how dark and insidious and like deeply rooted these curses have gotten. This is what it looks like when we allow other people to determine our, our value. So then if we jump forward a little bit more in Genesis chapter 30, verse, if we look at verse 22, it says, um, it says, okay, it says, then God remembered Rachel. And again, remember is the same as saw. It is, it's not like, a, oh yeah, Rachel. It is God remembered. It is God, God pays attention. God is aware. God sees Rachel. Then God remembered Rachel. God listened to her and enabled her to conceive. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph and said, may the Lord add to me another son. So God remembers Rachel. God, when, when Leah is alone and in despair, God sees Leah. When Rachel is at her lowest, God remembers Rachel. When both Rachel and Leah have moments in which they feel unloved, unseen, unvalued, in these moments, it's in these moments that we are told that God sees them. God remembers them. In lots of ways, if you remember back to the Hagar story, all these stories sort of have these, these links that I think it's easy to miss if we're not paying attention to them. But it sort of echoes the Hagar story from several chapters back. Because, and by the way, it, it doesn't end in a triumphant moment of empowerment other than, than them having children, which in the time would have been seen as a triumphant moment. But it doesn't end with like a, and now the system is fixed and, and Rachel is back to being a shepherd and everyone has um, a, a sense of like value in and of their own particular station in life. It is, it, it doesn't give us that like full closure uh, outside of just the world that it already is. And so it, it doesn't end with some triumphant moment or empowerment or justice being served or the toxic system being fixed. The, the toxic system will continue to persist for a long, long time. But, but we're told, at the very least, that Leah and Rachel, like Hagar before them, are not forgotten. They are seen. You remember when Hagar has, has to run for her life and God speaks to, to Hagar and Hagar names God El Roy. You are the God who sees. This is something over and over and over that happens. In a patriarchal time in which men get all the power and have all the attention, throughout the story, we have these stories of women who are naming God and saying, you are the God who sees, and being told over and over and over again that even when society has forgotten someone, that God remembers them, that this is the God who sees them. So the question, I think, an interesting question to ask is why is this such a com common theme in Genesis? This happens a bunch, actually. Like, and we, we've already looked at a few times that this has happened, but it happens enough times in Genesis 
to feel overt. It, it feels like it's, it does sort of like this, it's this commonly recurring theme of someone ends up in a difficult situation and God sees them and God remembers them. And a lot of times it's someone who is not necessarily at the top of the heap. It is somebody who, who would be in this society kind of forgotten and kind of overlooked. And over and over and over again, we have these, these reminders of, and God saw this person and God remembered this person. Why is this something that we keep seeing over and over in Genesis? Well, maybe one of the reasons why is because during like thousands or not thousands, but um, more than a thousand years later, during an event known as the Babylonian exile, or just after the year 600 BCE, when the city of Jerusalem was destroyed and the Jewish people were taken to Babylon by force. And there was this dark, ominous sense that the story of this people were over, was over. That this group of people had lost their home, they had lost their space of worship, they lost their cultural identity, and now they would die off in a foreign land. That was the belief. That's how, that's how people felt during the Babylonian exile, when they're living in Babylon by force. And so one of the things that started happening was they began to tell each other these ancient stories over and over and over again. And so in the midst of this dark, ominous time, as a way of maintaining their identity, their sense of who are we and where did we come from, the people used stories from the book of Genesis as a reminder of who they were and where they came from. One of the reasons Genesis has been preserved in this form for so long is because of its importance during the exile, because people refused to let these stories die in the middle of exile. So the question then becomes, if you were in exile, what kinds of stories would you need to hear? Would you need to hear stories about like strong armies and powerful nations building, like, building their arsenals more and more and more? Or would you need to hear stories about people who felt displaced and forgotten and overlooked and who are told they were remembered by God, they were seen by God. Even when they were in a foreign land, they were not forgotten. In the book of Isaiah, if you look at the book of Isaiah chapter 41, this is a text that was written in the midst of exile. And so in Isaiah 41 uh, verse 8, it says this, it says, but you, this is supposed to be God speaking to the people. It says, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners, I called you. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you and I have not rejected you. So do not fear for I am with you. Do not be dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. In the midst of exile, this group of people who are desperately in need of some sort of word of hope or comfort, they are told through the words of this prophet, they are told, your story is not done. You are not forgotten. It's one thing to say those words. It's one thing to just recite them. It's another thing to tell each other stories about their, your ancestors who thought they were forgotten too. It's one thing to say, hey, um, you're not forgotten. It's a whole other thing to say like, look, we come from a long line of people who thought they were forgotten. And over and over and over again, they were reminded that they were seen, that they were remembered, that they were not alone. So um, one last verse to look at or one last passage. It's from Romans chapter eight. This is like the third time I've used this since we've been in this pandemic. But I, I find, I keep going back to this passage. This passage keeps just sort of like, um, showing up in my consciousness over and over again. So in Romans chapter eight, uh, verse 35, uh, it says, um, if I can find it. Okay. It says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's important to note that there are those of us um, who have a certain amount of power. It's incumbent on us to, to ask how our actions or sometimes our inaction places people in vulnerable positions and leaves people feeling used, alone, ignored, thrown away. Sometimes, sometimes we're where Rachel and Leah are and we need to hear these words of nothing can separate us from a God who loves us. But sometimes we need to be reminded that, yeah, sometimes we have the power and sometimes we're the ones who are making people feel unloved and unseen and forgotten. Or at the very least, we have the power to make people feel a little bit more loved and a little bit more seen. So we can hear these words from Paul who says, nothing can separate us. And maybe that's exactly what we need to hear. But maybe for some of us, the thing that we need to hear is, yeah, but maybe I'm a part of the system that reminds people how alone they feel sometimes. And that's something we have to reckon with also. So for those of us who feel alone and forgotten and burned out and beaten down and exhausted, for those of us right now who are worried about their jobs, who are worried about their kids, who are worried about their health, who are worried about loved ones that they can't see right now, you are not forgotten. You, you are not unseen. You are loved. For those of us also, for those of us with power or influence or access or privilege, the question we're invited to ask is, how can I be an ally to those who feel unseen, unloved, devalued in the world? How can I, even, even in moments when I'm not necessarily Leah or Rachel, how can I at the very least not be Jacob or Laban? How can I not treat people like bargaining chips and commodities? How can I treat people in a way that increases their sense of value and love and not in a way that reduces them? So may we, may we remember, may you remember that you are loved and that you are seen, that you are not forgotten. And even on the days when this feels really hard and really difficult and you feel really alone, May you remember that you're not alone, that you, you are valued simply by the fact that you exist, that you draw breath. May you remember that you are never unseen. And for those of us who, who need to be aware of our power and our station and our privilege, may we become, may we never become indifferent to the power that we have, to the access that we have, and may we, may we always use those tools that we have in a way that serves and honors other people. Even, even when we're not Leah and Rachel, may we never become Laban and Jacob. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for these stories over and over and over again that were repeated to people as they sat in exile. These stories that remind us we are not alone and we are not forgotten. May we, 
breathe these ideas in deeply into our lungs. May we internalize these. May we carry them with us. May we hold these deep in our souls. May we, in our darkest, loneliest moments, may we reach as hard as we can. May we cling with white knuckles to the idea that we are not forgotten, that we are loved. And for those of us who have any amount of power or agency or privilege, may we never forget the awesome responsibility of using that in a way that makes other people's lives better and that reminds people that they are not forgotten and that they are not alone. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.